when you think about worship, what do you think about? That's kind of a weird question, right? But when that word worship pops up, I think something pops in your mind. Maybe when you think of worship, you think of the service that you go to at church on Sundays. That's why we call them worship services, right? Maybe you think it's not just that, it's more specifically the music that we play, the music that we sing during those Sunday morning worship services. Or maybe you'd say it's even more than that. It's the music that you listen to in your car, on the way home, on those Christian radio stations. What do you think about when you think about worship? Maybe it's not uh, encased in a church service. Maybe it is the quiet time that you spend alone with the Lord in prayer, in His Word. Maybe even uh, on a walk or at the beach. What do you think about when you think of worship? Maybe you think about all these things. Well, one of the things that I think about when I think of worship is I think of David. Because although David was a great warrior, although David was a leader among leaders as king, David was maybe the greatest worshiper that we see inside of the Old Testament. David had a heart for worship. David wrote the Old Testament hymn book of the Psalms, or at least most of it, and David is recorded as worshiping specifically and extravagantly several times throughout his life. So today, as we continue our journey through this series, The Heart of a Maverick, and we look at David's heart, I want us to look at David's heart for worship in one very specific and very relevant event in his life. So, as we get there, take your Bibles and go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. While you're going to 2 Samuel chapter 6, let me catch you up on where we've been in David's life. We've seen David anointed as king and then go back into the fields and wait. We see David sent by his dad to check on his brothers at battle only to defeat Goliath and go forward into national popularity. We've seen David on the run from King Saul. Even though he was anointed the next king of Israel, he had to spend years hiding and running for his life in the caves in the wilderness. But when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, those years are over. Saul is dead, and David has just been not only anointed king, but enthroned as the king of the nation of Israel. He was the king anointed in Hebron, and now David is going to decide that he's ready to move his capital of his new kingdom into Jerusalem. And so in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see this new king David begin to capture the city of Jebus. That city would be better known as Jerusalem. And he would go into Jerusalem to capture it, to make it his capital. And those who occupied Jerusalem said, there's no way David could take this. An army of blind men could fight him off. And yet the author of 2 Samuel says, and he did take it. He did take the capital. He did win the battle. And then he began to fight subsequent battles with the Philistines. And there's two phrases, really one phrase used two times in 2 Samuel chapter 5, that we begin to see a marked difference between the kingship of David and the kingship of Saul. See, Saul didn't really do this a lot, but it says twice in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that David inquired of the Lord. When he was fighting the Philistine army who were opposing his reunification of the nation, David inquired of the Lord how he was to go to battle. He sought the Lord's face and what the Lord would have him do. And that's something that Saul, as far as we know, never really did. 
And this is a big deal, right? Because it's mentioned twice, it shows us that David had a heart and his desire was to follow after the Lord. And so as he inquires of the Lord, the Lord gives him victory. David desires the Lord's presence in his kingdom. He desires the Lord's presence in his new capital of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, one commentator says this, that Saul had never shown any interest in this, and he had caused offense to the prophets and priests. But David, by contrast, working closely with the prophets and priests, sought after this, and therefore sought after the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of a Covenant is an important object inside of the Old Testament. Uh, It may not make much sense to you why David would have such a desire for the Ark of the Covenant. Matter of fact, what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, what we're going to read today is David's desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant into his new capital. But I think when we understand what the Ark of the Covenant was, we can really understand why it was so important for David. So what was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, first thing is, it wasn't Noah's Ark. So this wasn't like a boat that David was after. No, the Ark of the Covenant was a large wooden chest that was covered with gold and decorated with ornate detail. Inside of this large wooden chest, there were three objects, the first of which was the staff of Moses' brother Aaron. This was a staff that God used mightily during the exodus and rescuing of the people from Egypt. The second thing in there was a pot of manna. Manna was the provision that God gave the nation of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, and God preserved a pot of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant. But maybe the most significant object inside the Ark of the Covenant were the stars tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. This was a holy object in the nation of Israel. So you have this big wood chest covered in gold, ornate detail, filled with these objects, and then it had a very special lid. Matter of fact, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And this mercy seat that covered the Ark had statues of angels on either end. The angels were facing each other. They were knelt down, bowed forward in worship so that their wings almost touched over the center. And it was on this lid, the lid of the mercy seat, that the high priest priest would come once a year and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial lamb so that God would forgive the sins of the nation for one more year. This was an incredibly significant object and an object of worship in the nation of Israel. But in Saul's time, it had been taken away. See, the, uh, when the ark was created, it was housed in what was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent of worship that went with the nation of Israel as they moved through the wilderness and into the promised land. The tabernacle was, maybe a good way to think about it, is a temporary temple, and that's where the ark of the covenant was. But during Saul's day, the ark had been taken by the Philistines. And it's an incredible story. Matter of fact, you can read this 
this before you read of David in 1 Samuel chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant in Philistine hands brought curses on the nation and God defending his own honor because Saul wouldn't cause curse after curse to come upon the Philistines so much so that they loaded up the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. They hitched some oxen to it and sent it out of the nation. Well, the oxen took it away and it wound up in a town called Baal Judah. Maybe another name that we would know this by is the town of Kiriath-Jerim, about nine miles outside of Jerusalem. It wound up there and it was left there. Saul never sought to do anything with the ark. He didn't seek to restore it to uh, a place of prominence. But David, very early on in his kingship, because he desired the Lord's presence and he desired the Lord's direction, he had the desire to go get this ark and bring it to his new capital city of Jerusalem. And the the reason this is so important to David is because of what the ark represented. See, the ark represented, above all else, the presence of God among his people. That mercy seat was very literally God's throne in the nation. So the reason that David wanted to go get this ark and bring it to the capital city of Jerusalem, because he wanted to make sure that everyone knew that the Lord God was enthroned, king of kings inside of his kingdom. So anyway, that's the background. Let's hop in to this event in David's life where he brings the ark to Jerusalem. It's incredible. Start reading with me in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, verse number 1. It says that David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000, He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. Now the ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Iho, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Iho walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harp, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Here's David going to get the ark. David assembles his soldiers, his mightiest men, his mighty warriors. They go out in fourths, marching the nine miles to Kiriath-Jerim to get the ark. They put it on a cart. They tie some ox to it. They begin to lead it back on the journey to the city, dancing and singing and celebrating. And then something goes terribly wrong. I'm sure you've had those moments in your life when everything seems like it's going to plan and then all of a sudden the plan falls apart. That's exactly what happened to David. Keep reading in verse number 6. It says, When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah as it is today. And David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. 
The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Man, this is incredible, right? This is a shocking scene. In the middle of this parade, in the middle of this celebration, in the middle of the dancing and singing and worship, the ox cart hits a rock, a pothole, we don't know, and the ark begins to stumble. Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark, and as soon as he touches it, he drops dead. Now, to be clear, I believe that literally happened. That when he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he dropped dead. Now, if you've seen Indiana Jones movies, you know that the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to house incredible power. And when the Germans got a hold of it, it didn't turn out well for them. That was fiction. This is history. This guy touched it, and he died. It's a shocking scene, but I like how the author Beth Moore explains it. This is what Beth Moore says. She says, God is not telling us he is harsh in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He's telling us he is holy. God wanted his children to be different from the world. The Philistines might transport the ark on an ox cart, but God's people would not. How careful we must be not to think that God is less holy because others seem to get away with irreverence. We are sometimes tempted to measure our respect for God by the lack of respect surrounding us. I like how Beth paints that picture. She says that 2 Samuel chapter 6, God striking us a dead is not to show us he's harsh, but to show us he's holy. She also makes a great point that we may miss if we're not careful. See, the trouble didn't start when Uzzah reached out to stabilize the ark. The trouble started when David had his soldiers put it on an ox cart. Now, to be fair, the ox cart seemed like a good idea, right? It was easier. Uh, it was faster. Matter of fact, that's even how the Philistines got it out of their land is by putting it on an ox cart. But here's the thing. That's not how God commanded that his throne be treated. See, back in Exodus, when God gave Moses instructions for how the ark was to be made, he also gave instructions, specific instructions for how it was to be handled. The ark was to be carried by a specific group of people, a group called the Levites, a specific tribe out of the nation of Israel who were to dedicate themselves to the service of the Lord, the temple and the tabernacle. They were the ones who were supposed to carry the ark and it was supposed to be carried in a certain way. You weren't to reach out and grab it. You weren't to pick it up and carry it from the base, but that there were two poles built into the ark that the Levites were to pick it up and set it on their shoulder as they carry it. If you've ever seen a movie in ancient Rome where they would carry the emperor's litter on the shoulders of the servants as they walked through the city, that's the picture of how they were to carry the ark, those poles on their shoulders as they carried it on foot. Now see, the point here is that David chose expedience over obedience. He went with what he thought was easy instead of what the Lord had clearly commanded. Now the good thing is, is that about three months after this happens, David realizes his mistake. David realizes that he had treated the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne on his people, irreverently and improperly. 
So we see this in 1 Chronicles chapter number 15. So 1 Chronicles 15 gives us a parallel account of what we're reading in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And so this is what we start reading there in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 verse 1. It says, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. Then if you fast forward to verse number 15, it says, Then the Levites carried the ark of God the way Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord on their shoulders with the poles. So they get it. David understands his mistake. He corrects it. After three months, he goes back to get the ark. And this time, he gets it with the right people, and he carries it the right way. And we read the rest of that story from the primary account in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6 where we started. Look at verse 12. It was reported to King David that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying, see, I told you, he did it right this time. That's what we just read. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. And the ark of the Lord was entering into the city of David. Saul's daughter, this is King David's wife, Michael, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. And then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one of the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. Now when David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. If I might add, she said sarcastically. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls and his subjects like a vulgar person would expose themselves. David replied to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I'll be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. So, again, this is... Pretty incredible scene, right? The ark comes into the new capital of, uh, of Jerusalem. It's being carried by the Levites on their shoulders. They sacrifice, they dance, they worship. They put it in this new tent of worship. They offer sacrifice. David blesses the people. It's a wonderful scene except for David's wife. Michael sees him. And she sees him dancing and singing and shouting and worshiping, acting undignified, acting unkingly. And we're told she despises him in her heart. So much so that when we get to the end of the chapter and David comes back home to the palace, Michael looks at him and rebukes him for acting so unkingly. And David replies, it wasn't da- I wasn't dancing for you. 
I wasn't dancing for them. I was dancing for the Lord. And if you think that's bad, you had not seen anything yet. See, I love David's heart, right? This is David's heart for worship. And I think if we look back at this chapter and this amazing event that we just read about, that we can really see some key parts of David's heart for worship. I think the first thing we see that created in David a heart for worship is that David had a genuine desire for God's presence in his life. That, that's why he inquired of the Lord. That's why he went to get the ark to bring it. If the ark was a tangible symbol of God's presence among his people, then why else would David want the ark near his home except he wanted the presence of God in his life? Let, let me read you this lengthy quote by Mike Hilson. He, he wrote a book called Coffee with a Pastor. And this is what he says. He says, Bringing the presence of God into the center of your world is brilliant. God prefers someone who will listen to him to someone who will, uh, to someone who will just follow his rules. Be David on this one and get the presence of God in the center of your life. Don't be Saul. Consider this. When Saul was following all of the rules to a T and carefully making sure he did not break the commandments that were placed on the king in Exodus, he thought he was doing everything that God really wanted. What he wasn't doing was using the most significant tool he'd been given. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God with his people. Why would Saul not go there? The answer is simple. Saul was practicing a religion and obedience, at least for the most part, was what he gave to God. David learned to practice a relationship with God, and so what he gave to God was more than just obedience. It was devotion from the heart. David yearned for the presence of the Lord. Not from a rote obedience designed to get God's blessing, but from an obedience birthed out of a desire to just be with the Lord. If you want to have a heart of worship, you've got to have a genuine desire for His presence. You'll never have a heart of worship unless you really hunger and thirst to see the Lord in your life, to be near to Him, to hear His voice, to see Him leading. It starts with desiring the Lord's presence. The second thing is this. We see that David learns that obedience really is at the heart of worship. Right? It begins with David trying to move the ark like the Philistines with the cart and the oxen. But David learned... No, it's not how you do things. You do things God's way. See, we don't worship without obedience. Now, obedience for wrong motives like Saul does not produce worship, but there is no worship without obedience to the Lord's command. And that's what David had to learn. David had to submit himself to doing things the Lord's way. So if you want to have a heart of worship, it starts with desiring the Lord's presence, but it also includes living a life of obedience. And so what I want you to see, though, is this, because I get there's a tension there, right? Well, well, Chip, if Saul was being obedient, but he didn't have a heart of worship, then, then, then how do we know obedience is part of worship? What, what do you mean there? Doesn't obedience lead to like this dry, dusty old religion that's legalistic and worried about the rules? No, not necessarily. See, what I want you to see is that rightly understood, obedience does not restrict worship. Rather, sincere worship flows from it. Right? 
Obedience it d- does not restrict your worship. It doesn't hinder your worship. It, uh, worship flows from your obedience. And, and I think we see this extremely clearly in two of the secondary characters in this chapter. Right, David's the main character, but there's two others who, who, who pop out for different reasons, both Uzzah and Michael. Let's just, just let's look at Uzzah and Michael for, for just a minute. See, with Uzzah, we see David's heart is joyful in a spirit of worship. He has good intentions, bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. But God had been given specific guidance for how to do that. And ultimately, David and Uzzah ended up ignoring those uh, specific guidance. So Uzzah ends up dead on the ground. And David learns that you can't do whatever just feels right in your worship. That's not what worship is. Freedom in worship isn't just doing what feels right. It's not just doing what feels good. Worship is not a free-for-all where you take center stage. David had the spirit of worship, but he failed to rightly see the holiness of who he was worshiping. Look at Michael. Michael sees David out there jumping around in his underwear, right? She's repulsed. Michael is concerned with royal dignity, proper decorum. She wanted things to be done the right way, but she lacked the true joy of worship. She had no joy because she was too busy judging. Or, I don't know, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe she was too busy judging so she didn't have time for joy. The truth is, it's easy to get focused on the externals and the mechanics of worship and we miss the true spirit of the Lord. We dance in our living room on Saturdays when our team scores a touchdown, but Sunday morning is nothing but a big yawn where we stand in silence. She was all about the truth of worship, but she forgot the spirit of worship. See, with Uzzah, we see no reverence. Uzzah fails to understand the weight of God's presence. And with Michael, we see no joy. She fails to understand the freedom that comes with God's presence. So I think you have to have both of those, right? We have to have a reverence of who we're worshiping and submit in obedience to his commands for our life. But we find that that obedience is not to steal our joy, but to bring us joy. You don't worship without that joy and the freedom that comes with God's presence in your life. And this is such a beautiful balance that we see here in chapter 6. There's two warnings placed for us side by side, right? Uzzah shows the, the spirit of worship without the true understanding of God, and he ends up dead. Michael shows a truer understanding of God, but without the proper spirit of worship. And the very last verse of the chapter says, She ends up barren. Jesus says it this way, we must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's something that we strive for at the orchard. We want, to, we want to worship in spirit. We want freedom of worship. We want people to encounter the Lord in a meaningful, joyful, freedom-inducing way. But we also want to submit ourselves to the truth of the Lord, recognize who He is and His holiness, and bring a reverence to Him. And it's so hard to hold both because we very easily fall to one side or the other, don't we? But the truth is, is that both sides of this without the other are equally deadly. If you have a heart of worship, but not an understanding of God's holiness, 
you wind up dead. And if you have an understanding of God's holiness, but no heart for worship, you end up dry and barren. And I think this is super relevant for us because this is all about what we do and why we do it on Sunday mornings. Maybe your Sunday morning worship experience is dry and barren because you don't have that heart of worship and that spirit of freedom that comes from being in the Lord's presence. Or maybe you just make it all about you, do what feels right in the moment, and it's all about the emotional roller coaster without realizing that you are standing in the presence of a holy God. You have to have both. So I think the main thing that I want you to take away from the heart of the maverick that we see today is that a heart of worship is a heart of obedience. Not a dry and rote self-centered obedience, but an obedience that leads to freedom. You don't worship the Lord just in the moment. You worship Him in the minutes and the hours and the days and the years of your life by walking in obedience to Him over time in that same direction. So my heart for you is that God would give you a heart for worship, a heart that desires His presence, a heart that walks in obedience, a heart of reverence, and a heart of joy. Let me pray for you. God, thank you again for your time that you've given us to look into this word this morning. And I pray for those who are really struggling with this heart of worship. They feel like what they do on Sundays is is just something that they have to do out of obligation. God, I pray that you would free them from that. God, I pray that you would give them a joy and freedom that comes from true worship in your presence. And God, for those who find that joy and freedom and without ever realizing it or meaning it, make it all about themselves. God, I pray that you would remind us of who we are worshiping and just how holy you are. So God, I pray that you would grow us, give us a heart like David's, just as he had a heart like yours. In your name we pray. Amen.